Friday morning, I had a sermon in my head and a sermon, it was more on my heart. I sent Rihanna all the information for the one in my head. By Friday afternoon, it was apparent that I was going to be preaching the one that was on my heart. So that's the one we're going to be doing today. So if you notice, there's, it doesn't sound anything like what's described on the front page of the bulletin. It's, it's my indecision, not Rihanna's mistake that got us here. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to work uh, for the Episcopal Diocese of Oklahoma. As a teenager, I worked there some. He got me odd summer jobs and night jobs, uh, doing their cleaning and other things. And uh, from time to time, I would talk to him. The way the office was laid out is, is kind of the, the clergy side was on one side and the finance side was on the other. And as it worked out, um, that resulted in them often having different political views. Uh, and so dad would talk about how he loved being at a place where they could have honest conversations about difficult topics. But he also would warn me, come the week or two before an election, the supply room in the middle becomes a little bit of a difficult place to be. He said, there's been more than one or two times that I've poked my head in and made sure it was empty before I went in and made a fax and then got back to my office right around an election year. And a lot of times people tend to get really heated. It seems like we get angrier and angrier. Um, there's times uh, in my ministry here at Northwest, I've heard people say, it's hard for me to go to church and take communion with someone who has some of the views I read about them posting online. That happens in this church. And so as we head into a year where I think anger is going to reach an all-time high, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, anger should factor into the way that, that Christians behave, how anger should factor into the way that we uh, think about our politics and the things that we're the angriest about in the world. It seems politics seems to bring out a lot of anger uh, in people today. Uh, and I want to really get into the word and ask the question, is there a time when anger is good and is there a time when it's bad and is it, there a time when it can be a tool for God or is it always a tool that gets in the way of what God wants done in his kingdom? And I want to kind of wrestle through a little bit of that today because anger, anger is a dangerous thing. And anger can be divisive and destructive in relationships and in families and in the workplace and certainly in churches. And, and I want to make sure that as a church community, that as we head into a year where I think, and this is my prediction, I may be wrong, uh, I think anger in our nation is going to reach a climax some point in this year that's going to be really uh, unfortunate. It's, it's my opinion. I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, it's possible we'll come to some kumbaya moment and all the news channels will start singing together. I don't think that's happening. Um, it's going to be a tough year. And anger is going to take place in a lot of our lives and a lot of our minds and in a lot of our conversations. And we need to check our anger against what the Bible says about how we should be living in times like that. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen. We don't do that at all. Quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to speak. We need to be more empathetic in how we have conversations. We need to be willing to give one another the benefit of the doubt. And that's all there. Uh, and, and yet when we look at a scripture like this, uh, if this was all there was to it, we could take this scripture and say, there it is. The Bible says, don't be angry. So this year, no matter why you're angry, what you're angry about, who you're angry with, uh, it, just take your anger 
and stop it, right? Stop it. Don't be angry. Just whatever it is that you're mad about, just hit, just highlight all of your anger and then click delete and let it go away. It's just that easy. Except that as soon as you get up and say something that uh, solid, someone is really right there ready to say, wait a minute, preacher, wait a minute. Remember that one time Jesus got mad and threw the furniture in the temple? If Jesus got angry, why can't I? And that's a good question. And it's one that, that I want us to look at a little bit today. So we're going to go look at the story of Jesus' anger. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Let me stop for just a second and point out um, that Jesus went to a tree that had leaves on it, but it wasn't fig season. And, and, and that's known to the writer of the text here. And Jesus, when he goes up, when the tree should not have fruit on it, and he goes up to it and he sees that there is no fruit, and he's hungry, and he's mad, and he curses the fig tree. It says, may no one ever eat from you again. If we just take this at face value, this is a weird temper tantrum by Jesus. <laughs> okay, you walk up to a, an apple tree in summer when apple trees grow in the fall, and you go up to the apple tree, and you go, this, I'm chopping this tree down for not making fruit out of season. You're a crazy person. But Jesus isn't talking about fruit from a fig tree fig tree comes up again at the end of this text, and the reason it comes up again is that the conversation about the fig tree is really an opportunity for Jesus to talk about the temple. And it's an opportunity for Jesus to talk about what's going on with the people of God who are supposed to be doing a certain thing in the temple, and they're not, and it enrages him. And so here is how that story goes, which is uh, viewed through the lens of the dead fig tree. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He goes in and he starts throwing the tables of the merchants and the money changers. And then there's this, this phrase here in Mark's gospel where anyone who tries to carry merchandise through the temple, he stops them. Which has this, for me, this visual of Jesus like getting rid of everyone that's already there. And then as someone else comes in, he just looks at them and goes, nope, you turn around, get out of here. Like he's just chasing people off. And then Mark describes what's happening as Jesus teaching them. And as he taught them, it says in verse 17, as he taught them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer? It doesn't say, as he performed this unbelievable spectacle, as he went and lost his mind on these people, it says, as he taught them, what Jesus is doing, even in this moment of anger and of trying to show them that what they're doing is not in line with the way that he wants the temple to be run and that God intended it to be run, he's teaching them. 
He's very much in control. He's very much aware of what he's doing and why he's doing it. And so what we usually do is say, so if Jesus can get angry, can't I get angry? And, and I think we need to look at why he's angry. He's angry that the poor are being mistreated by the wealthy. Uh, this, this, mar this market that's being set up is being set up in, in the court of the Gentiles, where foreigners can come to worship God. He's upset that outsiders are being treated badly by insiders. He, he has a sense of injustice about things that are happening here that ought not be happening in the house of God, and it should not be done by the people of God. That's exactly who's doing it. And he is angered because the people who ought to know better are treating the people who don't the worst. And he responds with anger. And he responds with a sense of moving toward justice, God's justice. So if Jesus got angry, can't I get angry? Well, Jesus is also teaching. And Jesus is also in control. And Jesus also has very clear purpose for why he's getting angry and what he hopes his anger will produce. Now, if your anger works that way, you might be in good company. If it doesn't, you probably aren't. And this isn't just unique to Jesus. I want to look at the, at the full text of James 1, uh, which goes on and gives us more ways of thinking about good anger versus uh, bad anger, and I will argue right now that most human anger is bad. So going back again to the text that we've already read, but adding a little bit more to it in James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless. Jesus has control. Jesus is in control. Jesus is so in control that Mark describes him as being in the middle of a teaching for the people who are there in the court. Jesus is teaching them through his actions and his words and the quoting of scripture what they need to do. If that's how your anger works, that at the end of it, that you can say, God, you're welcome. Most of us can't after we've been angry for a while. If, if the people who are around you are brought closer to the way that God wants them to be living because of your anger and how you carried it out, then you're in good company with Jesus in the temple courts. But if you just go have a temper tantrum on someone and say, Jesus got angry and I can too, you're not paying attention. And if you can't control your tongue or your typing fingers, then your religion might be worthless, James says. We've got to be careful about anger. When anger takes control of us and God is no longer in control, then we are denying the religion that we profess to have, the religion that says Jesus Christ is Lord. 
The, the, the loss of our temper and our loss of our anger. I like the idea of preaching this sermon angry, by the way. That the, the, the loss of our temper can nullify our claim to faith and our claim to good religion. It's not just in James and it's not just in Jesus. Paul runs into a similar thing where his teaching and his practice appear to be in tension with one another. But if you look carefully, I think we can see that they're not. And it gives us, again, a roadmap of thinking about how anger can at times be good, but is often so damaging and hurtful and dangerous. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, and this is a section that is often referred to as instructions for uh, Christian living. Starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Get rid of all anger and rage. He says, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. So here's what we're talking about. These writers of the New Testament are very convinced that anger gives Satan a foothold to have control of you. And that when you lose control in your anger, that you are drawn towards sin. And there's all of these problems tied to anger. And we often want to just say, well, yeah, but I'm right. I'm right. And so I'm like Jesus in the temple because he was right and I'm right. And we both got angry and praise be to God. In your anger, do not sin. Do not harbor bitterness, rage, and anger. We've got to let this unwholesome talk out of our mouths go. We need a better way of doing things. So Paul, did you ever get angry? We want to ask. Paul, did you ever have your moment where like Jesus in the temple, you went, this cannot stand. If Peter was here in the room today, Peter would say, I've seen Paul angry. I remember when Paul got really mad at me. The Bible talks about it in Galatians chapter 2. Peter's other name is Cephas. It was his name prior to Jesus changing it. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia about an incident that happened sometime past in Antioch. When Cephas, who we also know as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and are not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's so mad at Peter as, as he goes and he confronts him to his face. But he doesn't just do it one-on-one. -on -one. He does it in front of everyone else that has started to follow Peter's example. This is a public argument. Confronts him to his face in public saying, Peter, what you are doing is wrong and it is unacceptable and it is in conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will not stand for it. Confronts him to his face. Tells him and everyone that's doing what he's doing that they are filled with hypocrisy. Which is not a word that you say to someone who you think is a little bit out of line. It's someone that needs to be directly confronted for the wrong thing that they're doing. And then he writes about it in a letter that he sends to a different church. I don't want you to miss this. Uh, this would be like Nathan's been out of town, so I haven't even had a chance to get mad at him this week. So this is obviously fake. But if Nathan and I got in an argument this week, and instead of me going to, in, to him privately... I waited until he was teaching the youth group class, and I went down to Nathan, and I said, Nathan, I need to talk to you about something you've been teaching. I'm going to do it in front of all these kids. Is Nathan going to be excited that I did that in front of the youth group? <laughs> and then if when I finished, I said, all right, now that I've confronted Nathan in the front of all of the teens, I'm now going to send a letter to all of his youth minister friends and tell them about how I confronted Nathan in front of the teens because of what he was doing wrong. I need them to know. Is Paul angry? Is Paul sinning? I don't think so. Because what Paul knows is that what Peter is doing is spreading a kind of prejudice in the church that cannot be a part of God's people. That what Peter is doing puts at stake and puts at risk the claim that the gospel is creating a new people out of two peoples. That what Jesus did when he died on the cross was to create one man out of the two because the dividing wall is torn down. And what Peter's actions are doing is rebuilding the wall that Jesus' cross tore down. Outsiders are being treated badly by one of the key insiders. And Paul will not allow that to happen. And so he does whatever it takes to make sure that that kind of a cancer does not spread and become common, as it unfortunately at times maybe still is today in the church. The divisions are allowed to stand because insiders don't stand up to insiders who are practicing faith badly. Now that's Paul's anger. Paul are you inconsistent with what you're describing in Ephesians? Because remember, this is the same guy who wrote, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Is Paul in violation of those instructions? I don't think he is. Paul has a way, just like Jesus had a way in the temple, of figuring out how to, to use the righteous anger of God in a way that is productive for the kingdom, which is very different from the, the anger and, and, and fury of man, which James tells us does not produce the righteousness of God. 
It loses control of the tongue and it disproves faith. That's the anger of humans. Paul is angry about what God is angry about. He says in Ephesians, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it will be in the benefit of those who listen. Paul is right when he thinks that if Peter receives his criticism and confrontation, that Peter will be built up and it's for his benefit. He has that, that end in mind when he engages in this angry interaction. Be kind and compassionate one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I look forward to someday hearing the rest of the story of the interaction between Peter and Paul, uh, between Cephas and Saul seeing as how they move from this conflict towards ministering to the people of God. We don't know exactly how it ends. You know, I think there's some keys for thinking about the kind of anger God desires, and more importantly, there's some keys for understanding the kind of anger that God wants to have no part of his holy people. Here's, here's some of the keys. Uh, the first one is right or good anger should match God's anger. Let's just find this in James 1, 20 and 21. Right anger should match God's anger. Because the anger of man is not leading towards the righteousness of God. Instead, it is referred to as being an evil, as a moral filth that needs to be removed. That kind of anger that comes from humans and is not from God is a moral filth. And so if your anger does not match God's anger, you need to get rid of it. And that doesn't mean just assuming that God cares about every little thing you care about. God does care about you, but he doesn't care about all the things you do. If you're really angry and cussing out your television because the wrong person won the voice, God doesn't share in your concern about that. That is certainly the anger of humans, and it does not produce the righteousness God desires. But, but think about Jesus in the temple. Does Jesus' anger match God's anger? Yes. Does Paul's anger match God's anger when he confronts Peter? Yes. Does your anger match God's anger? Because if it doesn't, you need to check your anger. The next key, even in your anger, you should have control. Even in your anger, you should have control. Your anger should not lead you to sin. Your anger should not lead you to rage. Your anger should not leave you to being completely out of control so that you're just like a wildfire burning up everything in your path. If that's what your anger is doing, then you will have the kind of anger that Jesus demonstrates in the temple or that Paul demonstrates to Peter. They're completely in control. They have a means uh, of, that they're trying to accomplish this conflict. They have a reason that they're trying to accomplish it. They have a goal in mind as they're engaging in this anger-filled conflict. If your anger is just trying to burn up everything around you because you can't control it, that's not an anger from God. Your anger should not lead you to sin or to give the devil a foothold. Anger should not lead you to sin against people with cruelty or violence. Unless you are just completely certain that you've received a word from the Lord or some understanding from Scripture that violence is the only means necessary, God is not calling you to be cruel for Jesus. God does not need a lot of Christians that are mean for Jesus. We've got way too many people that think that they are uh, jerks for Jesus in the world. 
And unless you've very clearly been called to that, you need to check your anger. Check your anger. At the end of your anger, you feel farther from God than before you were angry. You might be giving the devil a foothold. I want to say that again. If, if you start your anger, it, and think about Jesus in the temple. When Jesus is in the temple, he is resisting what the devil is doing in the house of God. When, when Paul is resisting Peter in Antioch, he is resisting this foothold that Satan is trying to have in the church. Neither one of them, when they were done at the end of the day, had to go before God and say, God, I am so sorry that I gave the devil a foothold in my heart and in this relationship and in the community of believers. They didn't have to apologize, but so often we do. God, I'm sorry that I let my temper get the best of me. God, I, I, I didn't live the way that you wanted me to live today. I let anger have control instead of letting you have control. And so the kind of anger that we should demonstrate should not leave us feeling farther from God at the end of it than we were when our anger began. Jesus and Paul demonstrate this, and we need to make sure that we're evaluating ourselves against that. The goal, even of anger, should be to bring all people closer to God's new creation. That's the goal. That's the goal. Does Jesus' anger bring the temple closer to God's new creation? Yes. Does Paul's anger bring the church closer to God's new creation? Yes. Does what you put on social media bring this world closer to God's new creation? I doubt it. And if before you hit send on that tweet or post on Facebook or have the conversation at lunch or, or have a, a conversation over a coffee break at work where you start spouting your rage and anger all over the place, what I want you to do is run it against these tests. Run it against these scriptural standards. Does your anger match God's anger? Are you still in control? Does it lead you to sin or give the devil a foothold? Does it have at its goal the bringing of God's kingdom into greater existence in the world where you live and are having this conversation? If the answer to any of those is in violation of what God wants you to be doing, check your anger. And so when you say to yourself, I wasn't going to say anything but, just delete it. Your greater wisdom, the spirit of God working in you, gave you that resistance. Just let it win for once. Know that, that what unites us is greater than what divides us, and let that be the bigger deal. James 3, verses 9 through 12. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, uh, after they use profanity, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? When a Christian hears another Christian spouting anger and rage and meanness all over the internet or out loud from their mouth, our question should be, do you praise our Lord and Father with that mouth? Because it doesn't feel like salt water and fresh water should both come from that one spring. 
That's a lot of salt water. A lot of salt water. We need to be agents of peace, not people of fury. Our country is going to go through a tough time this year, and I believe the reason, I believe this more and more, that the reason, uh, and maybe it's two reasons, that we really, really struggle as Christians to not get angry when it comes to our politics is this. The first one is that we worry that King Jesus might get dethroned. And I'm telling you right now, King Jesus is not in danger of being dethroned by anyone whose name is on any ballot in this country or any other. King Jesus has rule and power and authority over all the kingdoms and powers of this realm and the one to come, of this age and the one to come. So if you're worried that Christianity is in trouble, then you need to go back and just read the Gospels and see how much King Jesus has already won and will never be defeated. And if you're afraid about that, you might start getting angry. But if you're not afraid about that, what are you so mad about? What are you afraid of? Because Jesus wins and we're his people. We win too. And the other one is this. Is that we live in a world where way too many Christians get a lot of their identity from their politics. And not a lot of their identity from their Jesus. And if you are getting more of your identity, and if you believe that more of the solutions for our country and our world come from political rulers and not from King Jesus, then you're going to get mad all the time. But if you can reorient that to realize that your identity comes from your citizenship in the kingdom of God and not of any kingdom on this world, this one or any other, then what are you so angry about? Because our identity is not tied to any political party or country on this world. It's tied to Jesus. And it's tied to the kingdom of heaven. We need to check our anger. I want to make sure that as we move into a difficult time in our country's history that we can tell anyone who asks I go to church with people that don't always vote like me, don't always think like me, look like me, dress like me, talk like me, read like me. We take communion together every Sunday and the things that are different about us pale in comparison to the things that are the same about us, that we were created by one God, saved by one Son, and infused with one Spirit who lives innocent through us, that we might become the united body of Christ. What is there in this world that can stand against those uniting powers that are over us, in us, and working through us? There is nothing. So what are you so mad about? You want to be at a place that's not mad? Come to my church on Sundays, because we love each other in spite of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. If you want to be part of a place that's like that, in a kingdom that's doing those things, if you want to follow King Jesus, who is undefeated in the past, present, and future, you can do it today by coming forward as we stand and sing. I am here.